Well, good morning to all of you again. We've come to the end of what has been a very different kind of Easter reflection for all of us. And it's time for us now to go back and ask ourselves, wow, what was that all about? And I wonder in this time between when Jesus ascended into heaven and uh, the time of Pentecost, is that what the disciples did? Did they wonder, wow, what was that all about? Did they perhaps go back and search the scriptures and did things start to fall into place for them? Did it all begin to make sense? And as we uh, move through this morning, I want us to think about what exactly is the legacy of those events in that one momentous week in history. And the passage I've chosen for us this morning comes from Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 10, and we're going to be reading from verses 1 to 13. So if you'd like to find that now, Romans 10, 1 to 13, and while you're finding it, I want you to take a deep breath because while the message of this passage is beautiful, it's not the easiest passage in the Bible to get your head around. So Romans chapter 10, reading from verses 1 to 13. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses described in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, it is in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we are proclaiming, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul's letter to the Romans contains what is without doubt his most detailed, complete and carefully argued explanation of the Christian faith. And his letter draws heavily on the Old Testament. And for modern day readers, some of his arguments can be complex and difficult to get our heads around and today's passage is a case in point. We've got 13 verses there with six Old Testament references coming from four different Old Testament uh, books of the Bible. And some of these Paul uses as complete quotations and he uses them directly. Others are only partial references 
And sometimes Paul even changes the wording of the reference or appears to only allude to a passage rather than quote it directly. And this way of handling the Old Testament material can at times offend our sensibilities as modern day readers. We like our quotes to be direct quotes. And so it's easy for us to get bogged down in all of the details of his argument and lose sight of the point that he's trying to make. And as I was thinking about all the complexities of this passage and wondering just how I might go about tackling it without getting all of us completely bogged down in the details of Paul's argument, I was simultaneously completing essays for college on Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and enjoying getting myself bogged down in all of the detail that's contained there. And believe it or not, that was a wonderful thing for me on more than one account. Firstly, because this passage that we're dealing with today draws heavily from Leviticus and from Deuteronomy. And so for the first time ever, I am simultaneously preaching and studying the same material, and I've been waiting a very long time for that moment to happen. Perhaps God knew just how crazy life would become trying to homeschool kids under this current lockdown situation that we have. Secondly, the message of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, I believe, point to a much greater truth of the redeeming work of Christ at the cross. And finally, because in spite of all the detail and complexity contained in those two books, the message is very simple. So we're going to begin with Leviticus. Leviticus is not an easy book to read. It contains all the requirements for sacrifice and ritual purity and the guidelines for the ancient priests in the conduct of their duties. It contains practical guidelines for conducting worship and for living in community together. And it deals with all the issues of atonement and ethics and morality and holiness. And it is the book that those of us who have made that New Year's resolution to read right through the Bible in a year, Leviticus is the book where most people come to a screaming halt, drowning in all of that detail that's contained in Leviticus. But if you can keep your head up above all the detail for long enough to look around, you will discover a wonderfully simplistic legacy in the book of Leviticus. So simplistic is it that it can be summed up in just one word and it's not even a complicated word, it's a two-letter word. The word is in. In is the legacy of Leviticus and I believe it is the, the legacy of the death and resurrection of Jesus as well, summarised here in this passage by Paul. See, the books of Leviticus and the book of Numbers open with almost exactly the same sentence. The difference between them is just one word, and you guessed it, that word is in. Leviticus 1.1 says, The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Numbers 1.1 says, The Lord 
spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting. And if you think back to the events that happened just before the book of Leviticus, all of those things that happen at the end of Exodus, the tabernacle or the tent of meeting has finally been constructed according to all of the Lord's commands. The glory of the Lord has filled the tabernacle, but Moses is unable to enter. And so God speaks to him from the tent of meeting. This issue of the sin of the people remains a huge stumbling block. How will a holy God dwell in the midst of a sinful people? And how will this sinful people rise to be the promised great nation that will mediate blessings to all of the nations? The book of Leviticus is God's solution to that immediate problem. Leviticus is the handbook for the reconciliation of a sinful people to a holy God. And by his gracious provision through the blood sacrifice made annually of the day, on the Day of Atonement, God makes a way for a sinful people to approach him. The result being that Moses is now in. God is no longer speaking to him from the tent of meeting with Moses standing off at a distance. By the time we get to the book of Numbers, Moses is in speaking with God in the tent. Leviticus is full of instructions. There are instructions for sacrifices. There are instructions for ritual purity. There are instructions for the holy people living together. There are instructions for the priests in how to conduct their duties. And there are instructions for just everyday living. But God knew that even if his people were able to carry out every single instruction for keeping themselves pure and to follow every single law, they would never be able to keep themselves completely without sin. And so he provided for them that annual day of atonement that sits like the great centrepiece to that book of Leviticus. And it's by his provision and not by their own efforts that they could approach a holy God and Moses could be in the tent speaking with God. That's the legacy of Leviticus. He is in. And that's the legacy of Easter that we read of in this passage. When I read this passage, it screamed to me that we are in. We're in. We're in. Not because of our own efforts, but because of God's great provision for us in Christ. And so if you take nothing else away from this morning, just take those two letters, I-N. So returning to our passage now from Romans, what exactly is Paul trying to say here? Well, verse 1, it's his heart's desire and prayer to God that the Israelites would be saved. Nothing complicated there. He testifies about them that they are zealous but that their zeal is not based on knowledge since they don't know the righteousness that comes from God. And you might well wonder, how can that be? Surely if anyone had experience of the righteousness of God, it would have been the Israelites. 
they dealt directly with God. His righteousness had been revealed to them in the law and in the person of Christ. How could they not know? And Paul gives the answer at the end of verse 3. It wasn't so much that they hadn't experienced the righteousness of God, for it had been in their midst for generations, but they were just not willing to submit to it. And without their submission, all of their religion and their zeal and their hard work to obey the law could never lead to their righteousness or to their salvation. That same righteousness that the law revealed and required was manifest in Jesus and was freely offered to him by all who would believe in him. That is how he fulfilled the law. But rather than submit to him as God's revealed righteousness and accept this undeserved gift of righteousness, they sought to earn their own righteousness by striving to keep the law. And they were therefore still bound by the law and the penalties under it. And it's easy for us to point the finger and look at the Israelites, but how often do we, like they, mistake religion and religious zeal for righteousness and salvation? There are many of us that sit in church week by week that do great works of charity but that still have no personal relationship with God. So let's not be too quick to point the finger at the Israelites. Paul moves on in verse 5 to illustrate the point he's trying to make using some examples from Moses. And here is where we move into some very tricky territory because Paul is using the Old Testament here in ways that perhaps we wouldn't. And if you try and understand what he's trying to say here without understanding what he is doing here, you're going to end up with a very bad headache. This is one of those passages that you really have to stare about and think about for quite a while before the penny drops. You see, Paul is not here directly quoting from the Old Testament to try and garner evidence or support for his contention. That's what we'd like him to do, but that's not what he's doing. His contention was revealed at the beginning of his letter to the Romans in Romans 1.17, where he says that righteousness is by faith. That's his contention. But he's not pulling arguments from the Old Testament directly to support that contention. What he's doing here is a type of interpretation which was well known and well understood by the Jews, known as Midrash. Midrash means textual interpretation. But it is a system of interpretation that seeks to find meaning in texts and in words and in letters. It sometimes reimagines some of the narrative texts. Sometimes it creates new ones to stand alongside the originals. It often asks questions to the text, sometimes providing answers, but sometimes leaving the readers to come to their own conclusions. Sometimes a very small piece of the original text can invoke a very long discourse. Midrash was done by the rabbis and the best of the Jewish scholars 
as a means of providing interpretation for the people to live by. The Jews were very familiar and very comfortable with this form of interpretation. We are not. Paraphrase, prophecy and allegory are the three key Midrash methods and we see elements of some of these employed here by Paul. We all know the Apostle Paul was an extremely well-educated Jew and as a well-educated Jew, he would no doubt have been familiar with this form of textual interpretation. And for my mind, this passage that we're looking at today represents the best of the best. It is divine interpretation and inspiration meeting academic rigour and background. This is Paul at his divinely inspired academic finest. He quotes Leviticus 18.5, keep my decrees and laws for the man who obeys them will live by them. Now this was a verse that had kind of become a sort of a proof text for the legalists who wanted to justify their belief in righteousness by works. They'd sort of summarised it to um, do this and live. And he puts that verse alongside Deuteronomy 30, another of Moses' teachings that this time emphasises faith. And he reinterprets that passage to put Christ front and centre of it, thereby giving it new meaning. And you might say, how can he do that? And after struggling with this question for quite some time myself, here's how I think Paul is justified in doing this. Firstly, he can do this because the original point of the Deuteronomy passage and his reinterpreted version are exactly the same. Moses says in Deuteronomy 30, 11, concerning the law, now what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It's not up in heaven so that you have to ask who will ascend to heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so we might obey it, nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask who is going to cross the sea and get it and proclaim it to us that we might obey it. No, the word is very near to you. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart so that you may obey it. The point is, no need to strive. It's all being done for you. The word has been given. It's very near to you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. Just trust. Now let's look at what Paul does with that passage. Paul reinterprets it in the context of Christ in Romans chapter 10. And he says, but the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will ascend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is very near to you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Paul's point is 
No need to strive. It's all been done for you. Jesus has already come down in his birth that we celebrate at Christmas. He's already been raised from the dead. That was his resurrection at Easter. The word is very near in your mouth and in your heart. Just believe. And then you might say, well, it's all very well that the two passages make the same overall point, but how on earth can you justify inserting Christ into a passage that wasn't originally about him? Well, we need to have a look at the context of that original passage in Deuteronomy. Moses is speaking here to the second generation of those people in the desert. Remember the generation before them, God had prevented from entering into the promised land because they had been fearful and rebellious when they'd heard the reports from the spies who'd gone in to explore the land. So with that initial generation now all but gone, in Deuteronomy, Moses recounts their history to a generation who largely had not lived through it and who are now on the verge of themselves entering the promised land. And he tells them all of the wonderful things God's done for them. He restates the law to them. And he tells them of all the blessings that will come from obedience and the curses that will result from disobedience. And then he gets to the heart of the matter, literally. The heart of the matter comes in Deuteronomy 30 and the heart of the matter is quite literally their hearts. In Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 he makes a statement which has been widely taken to be a very early promise of the new covenant in Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of all the believers that will make it possible for a sinful people to love God and be righteous before him. He says, "Love, but the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul, and live. And this is a theme that is carried through a number of the prophets, but here it is right back in its earliest form in Deuteronomy. Before the Israelites had even entered the promised land, God had a much grander plan already firmly in place. And so very cleverly, Paul chooses to insert Christ into this passage from Deuteronomy 30, a passage that comes in the wider context of the renewal of the Mosaic Covenant with this second generation of desert wanderers, a passage that comes immediately after very clear hints of a new covenant yet to come. It is here that Paul inserts Christ. Is it a really clever piece of academic thinking or a moment of divine inspiration? I couldn't tell you for sure, but regardless of how it came about, this is an amazing passage. The final justification for Paul's interpretation, he gives himself in verse 4. There he tells his readers that Christ is the end of the law. Or another way of saying that is that Christ is the fulfilment of the law. That same righteousness that the law revealed and required was manifest in Jesus and offered to all who believed in him. Therefore, it follows 
that if the law is fulfilled in Christ, then Paul is completely justified in inserting Christ into an Old Testament passage about the law. So now we've covered what Paul has done here in our passage from Romans and how he could be justified in doing it. The question remains, why? And the answer he's already given in verse 1, because of his great desire that the Israelites might be saved. Have you ever had the experience of perhaps doing something for an extended period of time, believing that you were doing it the right way? only to discover that you'd misunderstood the situation all along. I remember as a child immigrating to Australia with my family and uh, when we came, I, I went into to grade three at school and we entered school in the middle of the year. So I started in May. And by then all of the, the friendship groups from among the kids had been formed. And uh, so I was keen to adopt the Australian ways as quickly as I could to be accepted by those other children. Supporting a football team seemed very important, so I very quickly um, decided on which football team I was going to support. Sport seemed very important, so we very quickly learned how to play basketball and hockey and all of these other things that we'd never had any exposure to back home. Then there was this thing called assembly, which they did at school once a week. And the first thing that happened each week in assembly was the singing of the national anthem. And this was very important to know the words of the national anthem because if you didn't, everybody looked at you and the teachers would single you out. Well, we had no idea what the words of the national anthem were and our parents couldn't help us because they didn't know either. So, after, so we began by just opening and closing our mouths and pretending that we were singing the national anthem, but gradually we started to pick up the words from those who were singing around us. Do you know, from grade three until about year eight in high school, I sung with confidence the national anthem, but the words that I sung were this. Australians all eat sausages, for we are young and free. And then, our land abounds in nature strips of beauty rich and rare. It made perfect sense to me. I was convinced that that was what everyone else was singing. I'd never had a barbecue until I came to Australia. So to me, Australians did all eat sausages, particularly in summer. And in Ireland, the pavement went right to the road. There was no such thing as nature strips, so it made perfect sense to sing that Australia abounded in nature strips. Although I do remember wondering who would think that a strip of grass, particularly a dead strip of grass in summer, could be described as beauty, rich and rare. In some ways, the Israelites were a bit like me, singing the national anthem. They did it with great zeal but their zeal was not based on knowledge. I was singing the wrong words and they were seeking righteousness where righteousness could not be found. The law was never given as a means of attaining righteousness. If it was, there would have been no need for that day of atonement. Rather than being the means of attaining righteousness, the law revealed the righteousness of God, which would later be personified in Jesus. 
Jesus did for us what the law could not do because of sin. And in him and in him alone, we are made righteous through the gracious provision of God in Christ. Our righteousness cannot be earned. Confess with our mouths, believe in our heart. That, says Paul, is what is required for us. Just as the prophet Joel predicted, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that is the great two-letter legacy of Easter, I-N. Call on the name of the Lord and you are in. You are in the family of God right here, right now, this day, and from the moment you submit to Christ and put your faith in him. You become part of God's family. You become a joint heir with Jesus. You are in. You are restored in your relationship with God the Father. You can approach God in confidence. You will share in his promises and a place will be reserved for you in heaven. It is good news. I, for one, don't want to be responsible for my own righteousness. I don't want to have to die wondering whether I was good enough or if I did enough. I know I'm not good enough and I know I could never do enough. But I know the one who is completely good because he is completely God, the one who did all that was required of him by the Father at the cross on my behalf. I know I'm in because I know Jesus. And that is the great legacy of Easter and I hope you know it too. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what an incredible thing you have done for us at the cross. We praise you and adore you for clothing each one of us in your righteousness so that we can be confident of sharing in that great two-letter legacy of Easter. Thank you, Father, for making in a reality for each one of us. We marvel at your gift of grace and we bless you. Father, there might be some listening today who are just not really quite sure, not really certain whether they are in or not. Help them to look beyond the complexity of Paul's arguments today to the simplicity of his conclusion, the words spoken by the prophet Joel, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Lord, may your Holy Spirit continue to speak and bring understanding to these ones that they too might call on your name and know without a doubt the reality of in in their lives. Amen. Well, if that sounded like you, then today's the day you should pick up the phone or send off an email to that friend that you know has already called upon the name of Christ. And if you can't do that, then you can always make contact with one of our pastors here and you can do that through our website. We'd love to hear from you. So as we depart this morning and go off to face another week in lockdown, another week of not really knowing when all of this will end, 
May the peace of God that transcends all understanding guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.